Let me invite you to stand to your feet this morning. We're going to open up God's Word, and we want to hear from Him from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there should be one right there in front of your pew. And pew in front of you, feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home to read, please feel free to take that with you home as our gift to you. Ecclesiastes 7, let's hear God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is Hebel. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For, this, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an, inher an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which was far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Why don't you pray with me one more time? Father, we are gathered here before your holy word so that we can listen. We hear in the place where your presence is known because of the work of your son to hear a word from our God. Would you be glorified in how we listen? Would you be exalted in how this message is preached? Would you be lifted up and magnified in how we seek to do what we find in our text? Father, my prayer, alongside of you being glorified, is that my brothers and sisters in here would progress, that their joy in the faith would increase. And for friends in here who don't know your son, Father, it is my prayer that your spirit would awaken eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Do these things for your glory, Father. Do it for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Ever since the third grade, I've become well acquainted with the eye doctor. So much so that the eye doctor's equipment is quite familiar to me at this particular point. The one that gets on my nerves the, the most is the tenometer. Anybody know what a tenometer is? No? You would know it if you went to the eye doctor. The tenometer is that machine that checks the blood pressure of your eye by blowing a puff of wind into your eye. Every single time the doctor prepares me for it and every single time I'm not ready for it. The machine that I like the most though is called a refractor. On the refractor, the doctor sits next to it and he switches between different lens, this lens, that lens, and he asks me which one is clearer, lens one or lens two? Which one can I see straight through? He keeps on going through lens after lens through this refractor until I can see other words than the big E on the big E chart. I've learned through broken glasses, I've learned through ripped contact lens, I've learned through James Worthy-esque basketball goggles I had in the ninth grade. I've learned through, amen, I learned through all of these things that sometimes I can take it for granted this ability I have to see clearly. To finally have the right lens click down and for me to finally tell the doctor I can see clearly, it helps me to appreciate this familiar song that we sing from Amazing Grace, I was blind but now I, I see. Jubilee, how is your vision? Do you see this morning? I'm not talking about the eyes that are in your head. I'm talking about the eyes of your heart. I ask this in light of what Jesus was anointed by the Spirit of God to do. If you remember in Luke 4, this Spirit came upon Jesus and he anointed him to do a couple of things. He anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the spiritual poor. He anointed Jesus to declare liberty to the spiritual captive. 
And he anointed Jesus, the Spirit of God anointed him to proclaim the recovery of the sight to the spiritual blind. I ask you again, Jubilee, can you see? Do you see this morning your need for Christ? And do you see your need in Christ gloriously met? Do you see in Christ unmatched uniqueness? Do you see the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Do you see enough of Christ to say of yourself, I was blind, but now I see. If that is the case in here this morning, you know how that came about. You know how it happened, how you came from going from blindness to sight. We know how the song starts off. It starts off by this. Amazing what? Talk to me. Amazing what? Grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Talk to me, Jubilee. I was blind, but now I see. Right? It's God by grace who opens up the eyes of our heart to see what we would have never seen on our own. This is called revelation. And this is why we can live life above the sun. We can live life above the sun because of revelation. To live life above the sun means that we live as ones who see. We see by grace alone that the fundamental reality of all realities, at its core, is the triune God's personal involvement. Their personal involvement not only in this world at large, but their personal involvement in our own personal world. The tragedy of life under the sun is that it is a life that's lived without triune involvement. Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, has set out to see what such a life would end up being like. His investigation is limited to life under the sun where revelation or triune involvement doesn't break in. Ecclesiastes 7 unpacks more of his findings. Now with the Muller report in mind, we can consider Ecclesiastes as the Kohelet report. And inside of it, with no redactions, the conclusions of life that's lived under the sun without triune involvement are devastatingly clear. Ecclesiastes 7 finds us in the second half of this book. And the first major question is behind us. Remember the question that was asked in chapter 1, verse number 3. The preacher says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what do you actually get from a life that's lived without the triune God in it? How many of y'all know that this question is becoming more and more relevant, relevant as the day goes by? The number of people without any triune involvement in their lives are going up, 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 and up. More and more people seem to be happy worshiping with what one author calls the replacement trinity. My holy wants, my holy needs, and my holy feelings. Question is, will they find lasting benefit this way? 
In chapter 2, verse number 11, the preacher gives us the answer. He says, Then I considered all my hands that had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was hevel, all was senselessly futile. It was a striving after the wind, and here it is, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's nothing to be had with a life that does not have triune involvement in it. It simply leaves you empty-handed. Ecclesiastes 7 answers another question that the preacher is going to ask. So we just read Ecclesiastes 7. Sneak back up into chapter 6 real quick, verse number 12. And let's think about this question that he's going to spend all of chapter 7 answering. Ecclesiastes 6, verse number 12. It says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? What a pertinent in-season question this is for every one of us in this room. There is never a time in your life when you don't have to ask this question, what is best for me during this time? In a season of singleness, this is a good question, what is best for me? In marriage, you have to ask this question, what is best for me during this time? In parenting, you have to ask this question, what's best for me? In retirement, you have to ask this question, what's best for me? When the kids leave the home, you have to ask this question. There is no season in life that we can live on this earth where this question is not a pertinent question. What is best for me during this time? I mean, I know that this would make a very interesting question to ask your neighbors and coworkers. I, I dare you to ask somebody this week at work and see what type of conversation that you might find yourself in. Today, June 30th, closes the observance of our nation's newest religious holiday called Pride Month. And from the answer that comes from that particular crowd, you would see loud and clear what is good for humanity? Gay is good for humanity, in my say. Advocates of abortion says that a woman's reproductive rights are good, while pro-life advocates declare that choosing life is good. Being woke and gender fluid is now good. What is good for humanity? What's good for people to do during the days of their life? Well, you'll be surprised at the preacher's answer. Look at, now back in chapter 7, verse number 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. In the preacher's day, ointment was necessary and therefore a precious commodity. Ointment was helpful for protection in odors in hot climates. Ointments were helpful for medicinal purposes. And ointments had an important function in religious activities. The preacher tells us, that a good name or a good reputation is better than precious and necessary ointments. Proverbs 22 verse 1 agrees with this when it says, that, when it agrees with the importance of a good name. Proverbs 22 1 says that if you had wealth on one hand and you had a good reputation and a good name on the other hand and you can only choose one of them, it's better to choose the good reputation. It's better to choose the good name than great wealth, right? 
Paul told Titus that a good name that's grounded in good works would actually put the opponents of the gospel to shame because they won't have anything evil to say about you. In fact, one of the greatest evangelistic tools that the church has in her repertoire, at her disposal, is a good name grounded in good works. It gives credence to the gospel. We all have talked to people who don't want anything to do with Christ because they've encountered some of his people. We know that to be the case. But the next part is going to totally shock you. It's going to shock you here. In the day of death, then the day of birth. Did you catch that, Jubilee? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. In, in other words, one person put it, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. It's better to go to a wake than to a wedding. Now imagine if at the next wedding that I have the, the honor to officiate, I started off by saying, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to witness the union of this couple, but first let me invite you back to the better day when we gather together for their funerals. That would be crazy. Is the preacher serious here? What is good under the sun, preacher? The day of death at a funeral home is good. The preacher explains himself at the bottom of verse number two. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let me tell you about my great Aunt Lee. In 1995, Aunt Lee came to Jersey to celebrate my high school graduation. I was the class president, and I had to give a speech for the graduation. Aunt Lee basically wrote my entire speech, all the while slipping in a reference of Jesus the lowly Nazarene. <laughs> she probably enjoyed hearing my speech in her words. Today, Aunt Lee is almost at the end of her battle against Alzheimer's. I've been asked, given this supreme honor, to give the eulogy at her homecoming. Since she's in Christ, this is a home-going. This is a home-going that's actually her graduation, and I get to return the favor, and I get to write her graduation speech. I know some of what I already plan on saying, and I absolutely know who I plan on saying it to. How many of y'all know that I won't be speaking to Aunt Lee in that day? I'll be speaking to the living that are gathered in the house of mourning, and I will encourage them to think deeply. I mean, I know that funerals have a way of reminding us about reality. Coffins, as it were, preach to those who are in attendance. The big idea of the coffin silent sermon is this. Death is the destiny of everyone, therefore everyone living should think about this. They should call it to mind. They should lay it on their heart. 
The preacher considers the day of death in the house of mourning to be better because it is there that reality stares us in the face. One day we all, barring the return of the Lord Jesus, will be in a coffin. And that coffin will be preaching to those living in attendance. Life lived with this in mind is better, the preacher says, than a life lived in the house of feasting because in the house of feasting, there's a lot of work going on there, a lot of activity going on there that's keeping you from this reality. Verses, four, verses 3 and 4 from the Net Bible explains this pretty well. It says, sorrow is better than laughter, gives a reason, because sober reflection, sober, concentrated reflection is good for the heart. Since the sorrow of death brings about sober reflection, you will find the heart of the wise in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth partying like it's 1999. What will you do when you are summoned from the house of mirth to the house of mourning? If you're living life under the sun in here this morning, life without any triune involvement in it, how do you plan to face the implications of your end? It causes you, if it causes you to reflect on the ultimate meaning in life in light of death, then there is no worldview on this planet that I know of that has a satisfying answer like Christianity. Death was undefeated until it stepped in the ring with Christ. I like how my man Sha Lin said it. Sha Lin said it of, of Jesus. He must have been hot and slippery because death couldn't hold him. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Yep. He must have been. I'll, I'll say it again because it's hot in here, so you may not have got it. He, Pete the imagery because this is ridiculous. He must have been hot and slippery because death couldn't hold him. My man Shaolin went on to say, Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche is dead, and Darwin is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead, however, Jesus is alive. And guess what? If you're in Jesus who is alive, then it is not death to die, right? It's not death to die if you're in Christ. In the day of a believer's death, she dies to live. This doesn't make us morbid, death-infatuated people, though. To live is Christ and to die is gain because death takes us to the one who is the only treasure that we can leave this life with. It is not death to die. The preacher goes on to tell us what else is better. Verse number five through seven. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is senselessly futile. Here's another shocking answer to his question. He says, he actually says, that being rebuked is good. Being rebuked is good. It's better to be checked 
It's better to be admonished. It's good for the wise person to tell you that what you are doing is wrong. Proverbs goes as far as to say that those who actually hate rebuke are stupid. But then turns around and says that those who heed reproof and rebuke is honor. Obviously, no one likes or wants to be rebuked. But the scriptures place such a high value on it from the wise, the one who understands reality for what it is. This is better than the Song of Fools because through the difficult vehicle of rebuke, the wise one that's rebuking at least shows that he or she cares enough about you to get into your business and to tell you that you ain't right. I mean, I know that we need those type of people in our lives. Would we be like David in Psalm 141 the next time somebody in love, a wise person, rebukes us? He said, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it's oil on my head. Let not my head refuse it. Would we be like David in Psalm 141? The fool isn't interested in the better rebuke, though. He is too busy singing. There isn't, of course, anything wrong with singing, right? We have strong encouragement from the scriptures to be a singing people. In fact, what's even more striking is how the Bible speaks about the Lord in his singing. Every single last one of us in this room has a conception of who the Lord is. I wonder if Zephaniah is part of your conception of who the Lord is. It says of him in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Then peep this out. He will exult over you. You, you, you. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that part of your conception of who your father is? That he's one day going to sing over you and not quietly but loudly in some sort of exit? It's probably going to embarrass you like your parents embarrass you as a teenager, right? Well, think about the singing Christ. Eric and the team did a wonderful job leading us in worship today, but Hebrews depicts Christ as the chief worshiper when we gather. It says of Christ, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I, Jesus is saying this, will sing your praises. Do you, can you even imagine what it would be like to hear Jesus singing praises to the Father? No, it's not, it's nothing wrong with singing as long as it's not the singing of fools. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that even, though that even though there is a time to laugh, the laughter of fools is not better. The laughter of fools is like the thorns that's used for a fire. If you didn't know, thorns that are used for a fire, they flame up quickly. They put on a show with a lot of light and a lot of crackling of a noise, but then they die quickly. In other words, thorns that are used for a fire are basically useless. This is an apt depiction of the songs and laughter of fools who refuse to come to terms with life under the sun. 
Here's something else that the preacher considers to be better. Look at verse 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is no wisdom that you ask this. Endings, the result or outcome of something, are better than beginnings. Have you noticed this in life? The tangible harvest of a crop is better than the visionary planting of the seed. The end of a good meal is better than the preparation of that meal. Graduation is better than the first day of class. A championship is better than preseason training. In fact, this is our prayer for Shalom Community Church in North Minneapolis. Our prayer is that its ending and fruitful ministry would be better than its beginning at this moment. The ending of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. And how many of y'all know we definitely see this worked out in God's plan of redemption? Do you remember, do you recall the humble and the obscure beginnings of King Jesus in the cradle? Well, I'm glad to announce to you today that in the end, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Because the ending is better than the beginning, and because it takes time to get to the end, patience is better than anger, the preacher says. Exasperation expressed through anger only demonstrates impatience, but it also shows one to be a fool. Because the ending is better than the beginning, it's not wise, the preacher is telling us, to get caught up and lost in the maze of the good old days. Reminiscing is one thing, but looking for a past chapter in your life, looking back to some days that are gone by that keeps you from moving forward is an entirely different matter. Verse number 11 through 12 talks about how wisdom is good and an advantage. Having wisdom is like having insurance. It's, it's a protection that preserves the life of the person who has it. And yet wisdom under the sun only has a relative and a limited advantage. Wisdom operates within fixed parameters, as it were. Verses 13 to 14 instructs us to carefully observe the way that God works. Verse number 13, consider the work of God. Take a good look at what he has done and know, know this, know this Jubilee, know you cannot straighten out what he has made crooked. Since the Lord can't be the author of evil, crooked cannot mean morally crooked or crooked in an evil sense. Crookedness carries this sense of the impossibility of fully comprehending a matter. Knowing all that there is to know about it. Since wisdom can't help you straighten it out, then what should you do? The preacher gives advice in verse number 14. He says, in the day of prosperity, on good days, be joyful. Anybody having a good day in here today? Let me see your hands. Anybody having a good day in here today? Guess what? Be joyful today. Be happy in the day of prosperity. Anybody going through something hard in here today? Anybody doing, having, having a day of adversity today? The, the preacher says on that day, on bad days, take the time to consider. 
Take the time for reflection. When life brings something to the table that you did not order, take a time, take a moment to reflect and accept the fact that God has made one, the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of adversity. Why has he done this? He's done this so that a person cannot discover anything about his future, even a wise person. The preacher is tipping his hand concerning his question about what is good. If you can't know the future, and therefore you can't know the outcome, even for the wise, then how can you know what is good for humans to do under the sun? This is the preacher's dilemma. He leans into this direction a little bit more in verses 15 through 18. Now, verse 15 through 18 is a notoriously difficult passage for at least two reasons. The first reason is that the preacher brings up a difficult aspect of life under the sun that wisdom doesn't have an answer for. Whether you know it or not, wired in us is this common expectation that if you do good, you would get good. Or if you do bad, you will get bad. Wired in us is this conception of you will reap what you will sow. But look what he says in verse number 15. He says, in my vain life, I've seen both or everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness? And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing? Everything within us cries against the paradox of this injustice, right? In our bones, we feel the wrongness of this, the, the wrongness of the good dying young and the wicked living long. Both Asap and Psalm 73 and the preacher are struggling with the prosperity and the longevity of the wicked. I want you to notice, however, that they ended up in two different places. Asaph got his eyes above the sun. He says, but when I thought to understand this, this is Asaph, he sounds very similar to the preacher. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. He got his eyes casted up above the sun. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That's how Asaph dealt with the prosperity and the longevity of the wicked. The preacher stayed under the sun. He went into the sanctuary of himself, and he came out with this strange, really strange piece of advice. This is the second reason why this passage is difficult. Verse number 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. It looks like the preacher is offering some middle-of-the-road approach. It's like he's saying, I've seen that sowing and reaping doesn't work the way it should work. I've seen that the good die young, the wicked live long. I've seen this, and since that's the case... Now, you know what you should do? You shouldn't be overly righteous and destroy yourself, and you shouldn't be overly wicked and, or a fool and die before your time. It's important to remember in this text particularly that the preacher has observed this under the sun, right? 
This is, this is what the preacher believes might be a good word to those who cannot be sure of what consequences will come in a person's life based on how they live. This is, this is not, let me say it again, this is not, as far as I can tell, not above the sun thinking. Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we were to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That would, that would be bad news to us today if we didn't have the good news of the gospel that tells us that we have Christ's own righteousness and we have the power of his spirit to live in righteousness. Paul tells us to abstain from every form of evil, not just exceedingly evil. Verse number 19 seems to be a little bit out of context. It seems to fit better where the preacher tells us that wisdom is good. But verse number 20 is a key to understanding what's going on here. Verse number 19 and 20 says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, wise people are of an immense value, but no one, no one at all, not even the wise, it's perfectly good with no sin. Remember the question that the preacher has spent this whole chapter trying to answer. Who knows what is good for people? Verse number 23 and verse number 24 brings the results of the Kohelet report. His findings are inconclusive. They're inconclusive. He says this, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off is deep, very deep, and who can find it? The preacher can share some things that are better than un others under the sun, but he can't ultimately answer the question of what is good for a person to do while he or she lives under the sun. That wisdom has escaped them. This truly is the predicament and the outcome for those who live under the sun without triune involvement. How can you find out what's good for humans to do apart from the one who is good? How can you find it out? There was one thing that the preacher found out, though, if you look at verse number 29. He says, God made men and women true and upright, we're the ones who've messed, who made a mess of things. And then he illustrates this with verses 25 to 28 that I'll leave you to consider on your own. This passage of Scripture Jubilee, in fact, the entire Bible, this entire book of Ecclesiastes, all the books in it are given to us to not only make us followers of Jesus, but to also help us to be followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is another way of unpacking what it is to mean, what it means to live life above the sun. To live above the sun means to live for the sun, S-O-M. So the question is, as we close it up here, how does this text help us to be followers of Jesus? This is what we're here for. This is why we open this book to help us be followers of Christ, or if you're not a follower of Christ yet, to become a follower of Christ. So how does this text help us to do that? I want you to consider our Heat Academy lesson. It's kind of appropriate for as hot as it is in here this morning. Consider our Heat Academy lesson for, as an answer to the question that the preacher asked 
who knows what is good for people. Life under the sun, who knows? Who knows? Life above the sun, those who see know. They know what's good. A life lived apart from the triune God will never be able to answer this question with binding certainty because guess what? Humans don't decide what is good. We think we decide what's good. We think that it's our human right. But under the sun, without triune involvement, all we have is our broken down sovereign self. If we just take a glimpse over our lives, we would have to be honest and say that this won't do. Five years ago, you might have thought that this was good. Today, you have evolved and now you think that that is good. Who are we to say that this is good, so this must be good for you? Humans don't determine what is good any more than our kids determine that M&Ms for breakfast is good. If you have your Bible still open real quick, go to Micah, the sixth chapter, verse number eight. Micah, the sixth chapter, verse eight. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I want you to see this real quick. I want you to underline this one. Micah 6, verse number eight. Are you all there? If you're there, let me see your hands. I want you to see this. Micah 6, verse number eight. Notice what it says. He, which is God, has told you, O oh man, what is good. Do you see that? He, O oh God, has told you, O oh man, what is good. We don't decide what is good. We're told what is good from the triune God. This is why we need revelation outside of ourselves. This is why we need him to open up the eyes of our heart to see. By grace, through his word, both the scriptures in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see. And we go from life under the sun with no triune involvement to life above the sun as those who see the triune God as the reality of their life. We see him through his word and now we can know what is good because he tells us what is good and our hearts love what he considers to be good. Listen to what he has told us is for our good. First of all, he's told us that he is good. Can I get an amen? I know y'all are hanging in there. He's good, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. For you, O Lord, are good in forgiving, abounding in the steadfast love to all who call upon him. Secondly, the Bible opens up with, the good, with this good God who created all things and then looked back on his work and declared them to be, including humans made in his image, very good, right? This means that we don't have uh, a hands-off approach to God's creation. We don't treat it as if it were poisonous to our spiritual lives. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving. For it's been made holy by the word of God in prayer. Third, his word is good. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. His word is like honey on our lips, and we would do well to follow the example of John and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and eat and eat and eat this good book. His word is good. Fourth, his word made flesh is good. When Jesus was born, as an angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is called the good shepherd who laid down his life for the flock. This good shepherd gave his little flock a good word. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fifth, the gospel is good news. It's good news that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's good news that even though all of us have turned aside and no one does good, all can be saved through Christ by faith in him. It's good news that there is no longer now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's good news that over your life, if you're in Christ, this banner flies that says you are not guilty. Jubilee, that's good news, isn't it? It's good news. It's good news that for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we who only knew sin might become the righteousness of God. It's good news that the Son of God loved us and gave himself up for us. It's good news that we are not saved by our works. It's better news that we're saved by Christ's works. It's good news that he became a curse for us so that we can receive the good Holy Spirit. This is good news and it's good to share. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And lastly, Jubilee. Jubilee. He works all things together for your good. He works all things together for your good. All things, good things and bad things, easy things and hard things, sweet chapters, bitter seasons. He works all things for the good of those who love him. Does this mean that everything in your life is going to turn out to be circumstantially happy? Nope. Probably not. The good he is working in us is the greatest good that we can experience, which is becoming more and more and more like the Christ that we seek to, father, seek to follow. Above the sun, those who see by grace know what is good because they know him who is good. And I encourage you this week now, Jubilee, to go and do the good works that he has prepared for you to do this week. Stand to your feet for me. Father, you are good. You do good. Jesus, you are good. Your person and work is good. Holy Spirit, you are good. 
where the preacher could not come across the answer of who is good, who knows good, or what is good, we can say, because you've opened up our eyes to see that we know what is good. Help us, Lord, to walk in the good that you prepared for us this week. Be magnified in us as the ones who in this world see clearly who is good and what is good for us to do. Grant us much grace, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First time